We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. Uh, you can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.org. The Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out the Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or readsacrossamerica.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. This episode of The Scuttlebutt is one that I believe that should not be missed. I'm going to have on two wonderful women, uh, one being the founder and artistic director of the Veterans Spouse Project, and that is Amy Updraft as well as the Veterans Spouse Project's Executive Director and Development Director, Leah Johnson. Uh, both of them are military spouses. Uh, they started the Veterans Spouse Project after Amy had written a play based off of many women's stories, many military spouses' stories uh, called I Will Wait. Um, they met in Alaska. We'll get into how they met, how uh, I Will Wait was developed, how Veterans Spouse Project came to be. And we definitely dive into their own personal challenges being military spouses. A lot of things that we hear at the VBC from our veterans uh, is that whenever they join, it wasn't just them joining, there's a ripple effect that their family was joining as well. We don't get to hear enough from the spouses. And I think this episode just perfectly highlights their story, their challenges, um, and join me to speak the truth of, of what their uh, experiences have been. Um, and the hardships they have faced and the successes they've had. Uh, it's a, an incredible conversation. I just really hope that, that you enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And please reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with any thoughts, questions, or comments, or ideas for future episodes. Uh, I hope that you enjoy this conversation again. I'm so energized and inspired by the by both of them, uh, that I hope that that you are as well, and you take that inspiration and check out the Veteran Spouse Project uh, and just help to support their mission. Um, they have some incredible things coming up. Uh, so thank you again for watching the podcast and enjoy the show. Boy, oh boy! Welcome, uh, Amy and Leah, to the Scuttlebutt. Thank you both so much for joining me. Uh, I've been very excited for this recording. Um, I would love for both of you to introduce yourselves as we dive into this conversation today and learn all about uh, Veteran Spouse Project and I Will Wait and all the wonderful things that you guys have going on. Um, but first, uh, Amy, if you'd like to, to start and introduce yourself, welcome to the podcast. Sure. First, thanks, Sean. Thanks so much for having us on. We're so excited to chat it up with you this morning. Um, I'm Amy Updegraft. I am the founder and artistic director at the Veteran Spouse Project. Um, and my cohort is... I'm Leah Johnson. I'm the executive and development director at Veteran Spouse Project. And Amy and I met in Alaska, even though our paths should have crossed years before that, because our husbands have known each other since 1997. Seven. Yeah. 97. Yeah. Quite a while. And then they served together, deployed together, and Amy and I never met until the stars aligned and we were stationed in Alaska together. How was Alaska? There, I mean, there's so much for us to get to, but I, I really oh, feel man. like for someone who finds this podcast and is like, I want to hear about Veteran Spouse Project, we'll get to that. 
but mm. knowing both of you, I think is is just where the story's at. So Alaska, tell me how that how you guys met. Well, well it's funny when you ask how was Alaska, you're going to hear two very different <laughs> opinions on Alaska when you ask mm -hmm. me when you ask Leah. Um, but Alaska itself, in terms of the community and the people we met and what we built there, hands down, was the most incredible experience of my 21-year military spouse journey. It, I, the people I did life with there are just some of the most incredible people ever. Um, for me, as a as a theater and an actor and book nerd. Um, not super outdoorsy. I'm not someone who like embraces nature. Uh, <laughs> it was a little bit terrifying and overwhelming and cold and, um, you know, beautiful, thankful. I got to be there and experience some incredible once in a lifetime things for myself and my family, but it will be on my places to visit yeah. versus Leah. Uh, we're in the middle of building a house. So we'll be moving really? there in months. Wow. Yeah. My husband retiring from the army after 25 years in about a year and a half. And we are building a house up there because it got into our blood and we can't quit it. So we're going back. Our kids all love it. We have three kids, um, mm -hmm. 14, 11, and eight. And they love it. We've been back just about every year since we moved. And I just want to be outside all the time. I'm from Florida. So you would think that I hated it, but I loved it. I loved the cold. I didn't mind any of it. The um, When my husband called me to tell me we were moving to Alaska, he um, said, we have six weeks before. Amy and I had the same experience. Like our, our, we, we were told, you're moving up there. You have six weeks to get there. And then our husbands were taking um, battalion command positions. So I cried for literally six weeks. And we just kind of joked that I went there kicking and screaming and I left there kicking and screaming. Oh, so. uh, yeah. Yeah. So we, yeah, it was funny. So we always laugh. Like we are, Amy and I are the same person in just about every way, except for that. Except for that. You know, and I think one of the most important things, a part of this conversation is you both started, you both started a veteran spouse project, which the terminology veteran spouses, but do you both come from a military family or did you marry into the military? Yeah, neither one of us are military. We're raised in the military. Um, you know, at, at the standard, I had a grant, my grandpa was, you know, fought in World War II and, and we have those type of connections, but no, I mean, mm -hmm. I, no. no. So when I married when first deployed, when the war started, I thought it was like a movie. And I was like, this is, my boyfriend is at war. Like, I thought it was this yeah. like romantic kind of, right? Mm -hmm. Boy in a uniform thing and no, for about 10 minutes. And then, then the reality set in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can, can we talk a bit about that reality? Because that's something that I believe you get into and I will wait the play uh, that you've developed. Um, but talk about your personal journey with that, because as we learned at VBC, when somebody joins the military, their whole family is joining. That's, it's very much like it, it is a ripple effect. Um, but marrying into it, uh, how much of a culture shock was that? It, it was for me, it was a massive culture shock. I mean, I had gone to college, gotten my theater degree, moved to New York City. So I lived in a very different world um, than, than the military world. Uh, and I don't think, you know, at, at, I just, I, I didn't understand um, really how different those two environments and communities can be. 
So it was very overwhelming. And uh, I think for me, when I got married, my husband was going to do his five-year commitment and and get out. And then 9-11 happened. And I think for mm-hmm. a lot of spouses of my generation, of our generation, um, 9-11 changed everything. You know, when 9-11 happened, my husband was like, I'm not getting out. And, and I had to, you know, and, and willingly understood that. Um, but then who could have predicted that the war was going to last 20 plus years? You know, my husband deployed five times, Leah's deployed even more. And, you know, when you hit the 10, 12 year mark and, you know, we have four kids. And so kind of, I will wait was born out of that. It, it, it was born in between Jamie's third and fourth deployment. I had had our fourth baby on his third deployment. He was home for a year but training the whole time to get ready to go back for the fourth appointment. And um, I just had a really, really hard time. And I, and I felt like, is anyone else struggling with this? Does anyone else think this is hard? Because I'm a, I'm a pretty, you know, I'm, I, I pride myself on being, I hate to use the word resilient necessarily. It's, it's overused a lot, but I, I pride myself on being able to handle things. And it was hard. Um, and so I will wait was kind of born out of that place for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and Leah, I think had similar experiences. Yeah, yeah, I had, when I met Rick, I was backpacking Europe for two months, like just with a friend in a literal backpack. Like we were washing clothes in tubs. We were just these like kind of free spirits. My, my friend, Amanda and I, we had gone to middle school, high school, and then college together. And it was right, uh, between getting, graduating with our bachelor's and starting grad school, we were like, let's just go to Europe for a couple months. That feels like the right thing to do. So we just, two of us just went and we just hustled around Europe for two months. And I was sitting in Munich at a cafe and looking around and I'm like this, I didn't really have like a straw, like I didn't want to move a certain place. I just kind of knew I had this like wanderlust. And I sitting in Munich at a cafe at 22 years old was like, this is what I want. Like, I'm going to move to Europe and I'm going to teach English to kids. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to see the world couple of weeks after that, met Rick, who was stationed in Germany at the time mm-hmm. and met him instantly was like connected to him instantly. You know, I don't love it for sight. Sounds so cliche, but the thought that went through my head when I shook his hand was there you are like, you're yeah. like, and, and so as we got to know each other and he, you know, the war hadn't started yet. 9-11 had happened. I met him post 9-11. Um, I went back to, to grad school and he would call me and he'd be like, Oh, I'm running with the bulls in Pamplona or, oh, I'm at foam parties in Greece or, oh, I'm skiing the Trollian Alps. And I'm like, wait a minute, this feels easier than teaching English in Munich. I'm going to marry this guy. We're going to see the world. Yeah. And then the war started and we got, um, we got stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He joined the 82nd airborne division and got caught up in that cycle of deployments. And nine years later, when we were still there and he was like Amy said, like he was home a year, gone 15 months, home a year, gone a year. Right. And, and when he's home, he's not home because he's training because they all know that they're going back. It was like this, like, I kind of always would just say like, we're wasting our, at first it was, we're wasting our twenties in Fayetteville, North Carolina tied up in this war. And then it became wasting our thirties. Fayetteville, North Carolina, tied up in this war. And we were just in this spin cycle of, you know, living these like really parallel lives and figuring out like if if I, as his spouse, was going to survive this life and raise our children and have a wholehearted family and somehow remain connected to him, we were going to have to find some strategies and some ways to 
remain connected, like ways for me to handle the resentment and the, the sorrow and the, um, the loneliness, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and I think the military community is unmatched. I don't think that there is any other, any other like subculture in our society where you have such deep, deep connections with people. But I, you know, I mean, when Amy and I met, we were both just exhausted. We were exhausted. And we were, we went, we got to Alaska, guns ablazing on like the fumes. And our husbands instantly started training to go to Afghanistan. And Amy and I met in the living room of the brigade commander's house. And she was like, hey, so it was like, we met and it was like fireworks. We were like, oh my gosh, I think you're my person. And then she was like, hey, I wrote a play and I want to talk about it. I was like, oh my gosh, I love the theater. And all I want to do is be around theater people. And I've never acted. I just, I am just like a diehard patron of the theater. And, and so we just started talking. And as we began to, and Amy, you can fill in some of the holes in this, but as we began and so this is when I stepped in and, and Amy, I want you to give the backstory in a minute of where you were at at that point. But when I stepped into what would become the veteran spouse project, Amy and I had the responsibility and the honor, honestly, of helping shepherd younger spouses through what was most of their first appointments. Mm-hmm. And we just, what I will wait in the veteran spouse project did was help create this authentic space where these younger spouses who didn't know how to handle this, who hadn't, who weren't crusty old senior spouses yet. In their thirties. That's right. In their (laughs) thirties. It helps them be able to um, just approach these hardships with a little bit more authenticity. And then we'll talk later, the tools that we gave them, but Amy, give the background then from Yeah. So I think, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the between Jay's third and fourth deployment, I had a really hard time. And so I I went to see a therapist, which I am a a big fan of mental health and making Mm -hmm. sure you're taking care of yourself physically and mentally and emotionally. And, you know, like, like a lot of therapists do, you know, are you journaling? Are you writing? And I just remember in that moment being like, I'm just going to write a play. Like that is always just my, you know, I think in dialogue, I think in scene, I, I, I just was like, I'm just going to write a play. And I noticed some people that would seem like, wait, what? But that's just, that's just how my, my brain is, is wired. And so I decided I was just going to start talking to other spouses across generations and see, you know, what of this is universal to sending people we love to war and what of this is specific. Mm. Um, and how have all of these other spouses managed like to keep their sanity and their identities and their, you know, um, feeling of self intact through all of this. So I just started talking to people. I went into retirement communities, you know, um, the VFW spouses, my own age, younger spouses. And I think for me, the stories that poured out of them were just, they were unbelievable. And I found so much strength in it. And I, I tell the story a lot. Of, it's two Jones and a Betty. I went into a retirement home and sat down with three World War II spouses. They were two Jones and a Betty. Um, and I had asked them to tell me their stories about, you know, we're talking about, you know, wives whose husbands went away for years and mm-hmm. they had very little communication. They didn't know what was happening. And so I was like, can you just tell me how you got through? Like, like what were your touchstones? What? what kept you going, right? Like what, 
what got you there? And one of them started to tell me about her husband and he had fought in the Battle of the Bulge and all these amazing things he had done. And, you know, I, I stopped her and said, of course, you know, he's, we all, we all know that he's an American hero and I'm so thankful for his service and what he's done, but I actually need to hear your story. Like I need to hear what you did because that, that's my story. And that's, that's, what's going to help me. And she at 93, I mean, just started to sob and she just said, no one's ever asked me that before. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, well, I'm asking you and can you tell me? And so it's like, they've just been waiting people. They're just waiting for somebody to give them permission almost to, to share their side of the story. And so as all these stories poured out, that was the basis for writing. I will wait. Um, and I will wait. We workshopped it and produced it first in Indiana. Um, and, and, you know, like anytime you create something and especially when it's theater, you, you really don't know what you have until you put an audience in front of it. Um, you know, you want to think it might be good. (laughs) You want to, you know, you're workshopping things, you're reading things, but until you see how a live audience reacts to it, you really can't know. Right. And so that moment for me, when we put an audience in front of it and it just, it just sold, I mean, as word of mouth went, it's, it, it just, more and more people kept coming and, you know, I would stand off stage. There's a moment where I would, I would just kind of stand right off stage left and I'm listening and you, you could hear, I could hear, right. You can hear the, the just reactions to what's going on. And I remember thinking like, okay, I feel like they're getting it. I feel yeah. like they're understanding, right. They're understanding the burden and the load that obviously our service members carry, but that their families carry as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it, it's it's different. You know, what I carry in my backpack is different than what my husband carries in his. Yeah. And, um, and so I felt really grateful for the opportunity to be able to tell these stories. And so I Will Wait um, starts in World War II. And it moves all the way to the current, to, to what was the current Afghan, war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And um, it just tells about departures and homecomings. And it's it's World War II and Korea and Vietnam and Desert Storm and then the, the Afghan-Iraqi war. And, um, and it just talks about what that's like, uh, what it's like to welcome them home, what it's like to send them away, how it looks different for families, mm-hmm. for every family. Um, how you would think the the world you know World War II deployments and the current day deployments are different, but really when it comes to feelings and human emotion, they're not. And that's <laughs> that not. universal versus specific you were talking yes, about. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. you know, and then and then we can take a deeper dive in the Vietnam, you know, scene and moments where they did experience very unique, hard, really, really significant hardships. Yeah that surrounded that war. And those are unique to that experience. Um, and so to be able to kind of, you know, highlight some of those, uh, Desert Storm is another one that truly I knew very little about. Um, I was kind of in that whole camp of like, well, what are you talking about? We went in, we won in a day, it was great. Um, but I, I just had very little understanding of the eight and nine month lead up, all of the fear. There was just, nobody knew what to expect. Um, and kind of that burden, you know, families weren't hearing from them for seven or eight months. They, they, there was all this media coverage, all of a sudden CNN's there. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, again, 
Yeah, and very specific. Um, the current war, you know, was the first generation where they were experiencing multiple deployments over a span of decades. And that was unique. So I will wait, just really kind of dug into that. And we produced it and it was great. And I was really excited about its potential future. <laughs> and then literally Jamie got orders to Alaska like right after that. And I was like, well, never mind. It was great. But, but oh God. With the bears and no one's gonna do theater in Alaska. So that was kind of where it went. Um and then you know enter stage right Leah Johnson who has just the right personality to be like, well, that place sounds great. I want to see it. And I'm like, well, then you're going to have to produce it. And she was like, okay, let's produce it. Let's start a nonprofit and produce it. Us theater people, Amy, you and I, you know that feeling of just like, oh yeah, that's right. We need a producer. And then when we find one, we're like, yeah, (laughs) you are with me. (laughs) No one else gets to have you. I was a theater producer. I was super happy when Amy was like, Leah, you're a theater producer. And I was like, oh, the coolest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> Again, such a theater nerd, like put me on stage. My head wouldn't fit through the door as I left. Like it would be my undoing. Yeah. I would love it so much. So I was like, yes. So so that's kind of where, you know, that happened. And because, because I feel like military spouses and families just, they know how to live in the unknown and the uncertainty and the chaos and the, they don't really take no for an answer. Like there's always a way around it. We're always going to figure out a solution. So very military you know, though, what you just right. described. A hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. Adapt, adapt and overcome. A hundred percent. When the army says you have to move to Alaska in six weeks and here's the eight list, eight page list of things you have to do. And by the way, your husband's going to be gone four of those weeks training. Um, they don't really help you do it. Right. Like, I mean, and they don't care that much. I mean, right. Like you'll get there. Yeah. So it's not like you have the option to say no. Nope. Can't say no. So off we go. Well, and what was really cool, I think, too, was just, again, Amy spoke to the group of women that we had, and it was, you know, around us up there that, oh, it was a magical time. So Amy's neighbor, Wendy, because, you know, Amy and I had kind of spun up and like, this sounds amazing. And Amy had this burden that I, I think is really sweet, that it's not something as not a theater person, I had never really thought about. But Amy will talk about, you know, as an actor being up on stage and you you are responsible for, you know, portraying this emotion or this character to an audience. And then you're not responsible for the aftermath of that. So when you have, when you have laid bare on stage, you just kind of go away and the audience goes away and however they deal with it's how they deal with it. But mm-hmm. as she stood up there telling our stories, telling her story, She felt this burden of responsibility as she was noticing audience members being very, very moved and opened up to these stories in an emotional way to like, how can we then help them process their own story, right? Because story begets story begets story. And when you say the story and we're all like, me too, like I want to do something with that. So Amy's neighbor in Alaska, and I was one street over, um, Wendy Caldwell was an expressive arts therapist. So when Wendy kind of came into the fold, she was one of our founding members. She's gone 
on to do like these other amazing things, but she gave us such a core foundation of um, this kind of model of workshops. So what the idea was, was to, we would produce the play or a reading or some sort of like storytelling experience that would then elicit the story from the spouse, right? In a, and then we would take them on to some sort of a workshop or a writing class or, or sort of creative activity that would then help them and then teach them tools to take their own experience and sometimes trauma um, and put that into a really healthy creative outlet. So uh, as the Veteran Spouse Project evolved from play to play and workshop, to COVID, so no play and all workshops. Um, that's when we kind of launched into our fully virtual model, which mm -hmm. is was such a, you know, COVID was really hard in a lot of ways, but I think for our program, it gave us the nudge we needed to jump into the virtual world. And that's really where we've been able to touch so many spouses, literally worldwide. Um, and now, now we have this community of spouses that comes, you know, we have a, a core of regular participants that come, we have some that come in and out, we have new people coming all the time to participate in what we call our healing through creativity programs. And those are our virtual classes. Um, Amy teaches heart to scripts, which you can talk about. Um, yeah, so I, so like, like Leah said, you know, I think we just, a lot of a lot of people in the military are right. They love their fitness. They love their five Ks and their CrossFit wads. And um, just like I don't love nature, I also don't love the gym. <laughs> so, um, it, I I wish I did, but I don't. So I really wanted to work at you know creating a space for maybe those spouses and family members who you know aren't going to go on the on the ten K run and just like pound out their feelings and process you know, and get the endorphins that way. I wanted to create a space where they could come in. And if you were more creative or more connected to words or art or music or, um, you know, if that kind of speaks to your heart, let's create a space where, where those spouses and family members can feel like they can contribute. So, yeah. and then like Leah said, the, you know, the workshops really just provided a safe space um, for spouses to be able to share. And now, you know, we offer, I, I teach a heart to script workshop, which is really just a chance for spouses or family members to come in. And I kind of guide them through how to, how to share their spouse story and, and the end product. What we kind of look for towards the end is like a monologue type of piece, a very right. short, specific um, monologue, you know, narrative driven Kind of, beginning middle end right yeah, intention it's just yeah. a chunk of their story um yeah. and and it's kind of exploded a little bit um well, it's very know. cathartic um so I, you know i do think that it just it it almost gives giving spouses permission and we say this in my, in the current writing group i work with um like to have a seat at the table yeah. You know, um, and and you can have a seat at the table without taking away from your service member seat, without taking away, right? We can make the table bigger. Right. We can make the table bigger to include yeah. to include everybody's stories because they're important and they hold value. And so well, and as theater people, you guys will understand this. And what I've learned um as I began to like get deep into the theater community in Fayetteville, North Carolina. 
Um, what I learned there that has just been strengthened over my time with BSP is that theater, when you present something on stage, it's almost like you can handle these really hard topics at a little bit of a safer distance. Like there's something mm -hmm. like it's, it's opening, but it's, it's a little bit safe. And I think that there's some truth to that. And Amy, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as you're writing this in, in this kind of specific way of like a monologue or a scene or, you know, take it even a poem or whatever, you can almost like, you can distance yourself a little bit from the emotion to the extent where you can like actually get it out. And then there is this catharsis in dealing with it in that almost safe way. And then seeing it up on stage, which we'll get to next, because that's what's coming up next, seeing your story played out on stage in, again, kind of like that safe place, like outside looking in, but it's you, mm -hmm. is just healing in a way that's hard to describe. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, I think for me to the final piece of it, and it's something we work to do at VSP, and I think theater does this naturally, is also just kind of letting everybody have a peek behind the curtain of what military families carry. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not often good at talking about it. We, we kind of circle our wagons and we take care of each other and we do what needs to be done. Um, but I, I think it's important for the 99% of Americans that don't serve. 99.5, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, that they understand, truly understand what it means means when the people they elect send people to war yeah. um, and that it doesn't, yes, it obviously impacts those they send first and foremost, mm -hmm. but the ripple effect of that is significant. Um, and you should understand what that means. Mm -hmm. You should understand what you're asking of American service members and their families. And they can yeah. only understand that if we tell them. True. Well, this is why I love both of you, because this is my page of notes already. And I'm just like, ah, <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so it, first, uh, I want to go back just a touch, because did Veteran Spouse Project come out of I Will Wait? When, where did the inception of that take place? It it did. So, so I kind of wrote the, because again, as you know, the thought of writing the play was a lot less terrifying than the start of the thought of like starting a business, yeah. <laughs> and like making a budget, and like... <laughs> Like, wait, what? Um, so, so, and Leah um, has owned a business for a long time. Uh, so she's very business minded. And so kind of, again, when we had this meeting, I was like, well, I really, I'd love to produce this play, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she was like, okay, well, I, I think I can do that part of it. And so that started with, uh, okay, well, let, let's create a 501c3. Let's create, a, and I think we knew instinctually that we needed a, a foundation. We needed a base, mm -hmm. you know, that if we wanted this to have any type of longevity, it had, it had to have a solid base. And mm -hmm. so, you know, Leah, it was just so, so great at kind of helping, helping me get out of my own fear of that to be like, it's fine, Amy, people, people start businesses all the time. People start nonprofits. Let's just do it. And I was yeah. like, yeah. Oh, yeah, John profits are a dime a dozen. You, I, yeah, you can go out any day and just say, hey, my mission is to rake <laughs> leaves. Right. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, the final piece to that is, 
as you definitely know, Sean, just because you've written a play, you have to find someone who's willing to produce it and pay for it. And Mm -hmm. you have to shop it to theaters, right? Like there's a whole process that's often involved. And by us essentially producing our own play, it it took all that away. I didn't have to convince anyone else to buy it because we were just going to produce it, Um, which was a little bit terrifying. But when you have a Leah Johnson, who, when I say, well, we need X amount of dollars to produce it. And it was a pretty high number. She was like, oh, okay, well, we can raise that. Okay. Really? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is where the fireworks came in. We were like, this is a great idea. I think we could do this. You're like, you're sure? For sure. Let's go. Let's do this. And then we blazed ahead and it was, yeah. I mean, it, it was, was kind of we have like, to laugh. our first meeting that we took in Anchorage, Alaska was with the executive director of a pretty big family foundation there. And we, we had ne- like, the, I mean, I've been in the business world my entire life, but I have never been in like this fundraising space, but I was just yeah. like, How could that be? You just tell people you get people to like, you match the money with the mission. Like if you can get yeah. someone passionate about it, there's money to give and they're looking for places to give it. So that's kind of how my brain works. I'm like, we just need to, we just need to put this in front of people and see if they love it. And if they love it, they'll give us money. So we go into this guy's office who has become just a dear friend of ours in the past, you know, five or six years. But we laugh sometimes. We're like, who did we think we were? We walk into his office on like the 10th floor of this bank building in downtown Anchorage. And we we go for our meeting and we walk in, Amy sits down. I go over and make myself a cup of coffee. And we're like, all right, Mr. Herman, we've got something to tell you. And we just launch into this whole thing. They wound up being a huge funder right out the gate. He he invited us back. Uh, to- because Sean, theater degree, Mr. Perman had a theater degree. Oh, <laughs> man, oh, that's yeah. a match. Well, let me tell you something. Yeah. Right? That's right. So- we could do this. Yeah. It was yeah. Just- well, here's the thing. You walk into that room and, and I remember feeling that same way being an actor. Like, how does this happen? How do you get the money? How do you even ask for that? Because that seems really daunting. And like, why, you know, they're just gonna be like, no, I'm not going to give you that. But when you have two people such as yourselves who are very passionate about this, who have lived it and also just uh, uh, can speak to it and love it. There's no way, it's impossible for someone else to not be energized by that and excited for it. And especially in his position to be like, well, of course I want to support this. I know. Who else is, no one else is doing this and, it, no. and it's important. And, and I think that, you know, that's kind of what we realized. We, we've gotten much better. Like you said, like Leah doesn't let me talk specifically about money because I'm like, it's okay if you don't want to give us the money. It's no big, and she's like, no, no, you no. don't get to. That's why we're here. <laughs> Like, money. I'm like, okay, right. You do that part. I'll do yeah. right. But but you talk all- the emotion. You get them. You get them all emotional, and then I'll yeah. swoop in and be like, yeah. Um, but to circle back, you know, it again, it goes back to that idea of we're just not going to necessarily hear the word no. I mean, yeah. we're you know when people are like wait no, but that doesn't deter us in the least. Right. And, you know, and even when people like, wait, so you move to Alaska and then your spouse is deployed to Afghanistan where you're helping to, you know, make sure families are taken care of back home, but you're also going to produce this play and fly people into Alaska to act in it. And it's going to have music and you're going to sell tickets and we're going to start a business. And we were like, yeah, no, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, that sounds great. And I think, you know, you know, my sister or those of my friends who live in the civilian world are like, what are you 
doing? What is wrong with you? But I think for those of us that live and it's like, this is, what am I going to do? Wait, I can't get There's so many correlations here between that and the military of just like someone tells me like, yeah, I joined the military. I went to boot camp, and then I was deployed and I chose to re-up and I was deployed again. And you know, then I decided to go special forces or whatever the case may be. And I'm like, what? Why would you choose to do that? Why? Or, uh, you know, even like I've talked with military journalists who are like, yeah, I chose because I wanted to tell the story and I wanted to get the real story. And I went over there and I'm like, you're not even trained for the military. Why would you do that? You know, it's it's so foreign to my brain, but I can't imagine somebody says like, hey, why would you put yourself on stage and act in front of 300 people? It's like, well, yeah, that's just what I do. It's like, you know, that's where my passion is. That's what, you know, where's my skill set is or whatever. Um, It's so interesting that they just keep on sort of like inner, you know intertwined well and and you know this too right like like in the theater it's all about trusting your instincts like Mm -hmm. everything in the theater is about trusting your instincts i love that line from what is it sideways he's like i'm an actor all i have are my instincts yes exactly (laughs) exactly so right you too so we we understand that but in reality a lot of living and surviving and thriving in the military is in some ways trusting your instincts as well like I, i don't i don't know you neighbor lady but I feel like I'm only here for 18 months and I feel like you could be my friend so you know I'm I'm gonna put myself out there I'm gonna I'm Mm -hmm. gonna right I'm gonna step out into the unknown I'm gonna make friends with people that I on paper have nothing in common with I'm gonna move to Alaska and you know what I'm not gonna do while I did cry for six weeks then we're gonna get there and I'm gonna be like okay kids let's what's our bucket what's our list it's bears glaciers it's right like lemonade out of lemons yeah yeah, one other way. It goes one way or the other. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna figure it out. And so I mm-hmm. think partly by the opportunities, right? Even though they might be devastating at first, there is opportunity in everything. And everybody's looking for that. I feel like probably on these like you know in these military communities, and it's not and and it may be some ways insular. But I wrote down support group, and both of you ended up being sort of each other's support. But then as you start to peel in more pieces of this through the community. They're saying, yeah, I have a story. I'd like to tell my story or, you know, but one thing I want to drill down on, Amy, is something you've brought up that, that, that keeps ringing in my head is that this vulnerability of telling the story, because it's, it's one thing to write it down in a journal, another thing to write a play about it and then either perform in it or show it to everybody. Because you can do art therapy and be in a small group. You can do, you know, uh, a therapist and be one-on-one and talk about the trauma you've experienced or talk about what life is like as a military spouse. But to open yourself up that fully to say, everybody should watch this and then have an opinion on what that is. That's something I want to, I would love to hear your opinion on. Because I've I've experienced showing my story a bit of a story that I had on stage before and boy I felt small in that audience I felt really sort of like I am bearing a soul that I didn't realize it until it was on stage and it was being presented to me and I I think yeah I mean I think right there is this overwhelming fear Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and you know I I like to always tell the theater kids that I that I teach like you know, there is, there is such a thing as healthy fear, believe it or mm-hmm. not, right? Like, um, it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to feel afraid as long as you still step out into the light, right? Yeah. Like, as long as you still step on stage, it's okay to be terrified right before you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that for me, um, it wasn't until 
because you know you write it and you put it out there and there's still the chance that it's going to be terrible and no one's going to like it and then you're like well <laughs> okay but it was almost like once um the audience was so receptive to it mm-hmm. that there was a part of me that was like oh I maybe need to put it back in the box like I, like yeah now now I didn't know I didn't know that it was gonna and that goes back to what Leah said right like I and and you know this like I I do my best to direct or produce or act in plays and make them the best that they can be but how the audience reacts to it is is not my responsibility truthfully I mean right um but this felt very different and I think once I saw once once I walked out into the lobby and saw people like like gutted um I was like oh I didn't I didn't mean right like I didn't mean to crack you wide open I okay like I'm Mm -hmm. there was just so many like mixed feelings about it and now it was like well now we have to make sure they are connected to resources to help them like while I'm like I'm thankful yeah you're that right like because sometimes we need that moment of having things reflected back at us or feeling seen or heard to be like I am not alone Mm -hmm. I'm not alone in this I'm so thankful that the play has been that for some people yeah but with that came a lot of response I I felt a very deep responsibility in it Mm -hmm. um and that felt that was the part for me that was scary because I was like, okay, I just, I feel like I can tell a pretty good story and I can be pretty authentic and real in the moment and be vulnerable. But man, I, I didn't anticipate it uh, just really and, and, and impacting. And even a, a, a secondary effect of it is when we did it the first time we got in the car and my husband, 21 years in the infantry, five deployments, I had twins. He was so happy. Didn't shed a tear. Like not an emotional man, essentially. Ranger who uh, all the things. Yeah. Um, we got in the car after the play had happened for the first time. We had opened. We got in our car, and he like. I mean, he just came undone. Wow. And I was like, Oh my! What's happening? What's <laughs> like, What's wrong with you? <laughs> and he and he said something that I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. And we have since seen it every time we've produced the play and done readings. Is that oftentimes for the service members? You know, he said, "Aim." I didn't think about this. Sounds terrible, but I didn't think about you all those times I was deployed because if I thought about you and the kids, I couldn't get on the plane. Yeah. And so I just knew you had it. Like I knew, I, I loved like you. That means, like, right, that, that you had it, that's it. And like, right? I knew you had it. I knew that whatever came for the kids and you or whatever, you could figure it out. And I was so thankful for that. And that's, that's really where I left it. I mean, truthfully, like emotionally. And I went to do my job and he said, but for me to see it, I, I wasn't prepared to see it. And, you know, and he's like, it just really touched me in a way that I didn't anticipate it. Did he have to deploy after seeing it again? He did. He did that. That's when he did his deployment to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Did it, did the play, was that next deployment harder because he saw the play? You know, I don't think so because I think. Compartmentalize. 
most of our service members are just, they literally have like graduate degrees in compartmentalization <laughs> for better or worse. Um, but, but what I think it did for him was, here's what I know it did, is it made him a more compassionate leader to mm. his soldiers and their families. Yeah. It made him understand that, wow, wow, I have a, I'm really thankful that I have a spouse who is able to take care of herself physically, emotionally, mentally, to provide stability and take care of our family. Not all of your service members have that, yeah. right? And and some of those families and spouses, they need extra help. They need guidance to resources. They need to know they're not alone in it. They need to have a better, right? And, mm-hmm. and so I, I do think it like deepened his empathy. Um with this idea, right? That yes, these, these 600 soldiers you lead are your responsibility, but, and you've said it for 20 years, but now he actually lived this idea of, but so are all of the people that live with them and love them. It's Um, a different thing for our audience. Maybe if you're, you know, if you're listening in just like the idea of the mental load on the service member, whether it be service, you know, male or female, just, we think like, oh, okay, they're going to go to war. That's, that's a mental load all in its own right to have people under your command, huge. But then to add on that, like also your family, your kids. I can't, I have two kids now. I could not imagine stepping out the door and saying, I'll see you in six months to eight months to a year. And I don't know if I'm coming back. And that is terrifying, terrifying. So Rick, um, Rick left five days after our first daughter was born. So, you know, he was, he was, there for every birth, which is not a common, you know, we yeah. I feel like very fortunate in this past 20 years. Um, but he he did leave five days after our first child was born. And I um right, Amy and I've recently been talking about this. And um it was it was kind of a wild experience. The 82nd, you know, the entire 82nd Airborne Division deployed for the surge. So between like mm-hmm. 06 and 08, there was like 5,000 soldiers gone. They came home and most of them knew, my husband included, that um, they had 12 months before they left again. So before they got home, we already knew 12 months of training, getting ready, you're going right back for for 12 months. So it was just like this wild, you know, three years or so. So everyone got home, 5,000 soldiers got home and everyone had a baby. So it was this massive baby boom and we were, we weren't in it. And we, we kind of joked with each other a little bit. Um, we have three months to get pregnant because you're not, I'm not having you miss the birth. So Mm -hmm. we got pregnant that third month, which pushed us right up to when he deployed and she was due. She was born the day that everybody left and his command, let him stay. Thank you so much for five days and go on what they called trail party, which is kind of the last of the, the, the soldiers to go. So NBC had caught wind of what was uh, happening at Fort Bragg. So they sent Ron Mott and the NBC Nightly News crew out to do this story on the baby boom at Fort Bragg. And the PAO told them, the public affairs officer told the NBC about our story because we were the ones with the new, like we were the sob story of it because we had the newborn and he was leaving. So they asked if they could come do an interview within that five days. So it was like three days after she was born, you know, oh man, I don't even know you weren't emotional or anything. Oh, Leah, I'm just thinking about my wife. (laughs) Right. Like it was, I still don't know. Like, why did we say yes to this? 
because all I want to do is be on stage, you guys. I'm like a camera. Well, yeah. For sure. If I went to my wife and was like, no, hey, still. three days after Isaac was born, we're going to have NBC pop in here for an interview. Right. Would, the darts that would come out of her eyes. <laughs> right. Email, I was like, I think I can blow my hair out. I think I can do this. I knocked out a great blowout that day. <laughs> so just to the point though, I, we, we had kind of thought about what we wanted to talk about. And, and, and this was all very, very true. Like we, so we get to the interview and Ron Mott is just asking us all, you know, exactly what you're saying. Like, how are you going to do this? And, and we had the, we almost had like the canned army wife answers and, and mm. they were true, right? Like, well, we have the family readiness group and, and Rick's a battery commander and I'm the family readiness group leader. So I've got this support system and, you know, and he would pry a little bit more and it's like, well, we have our church community. Like, here's how we're going to get through this. We have our church community. We have our faith. We have our army community. I have family close by, like we can do this. And it was literally like a two hour interview. And finally at the very end of it, and I swear to you, Ron Mott waited until I cried to wrap this up. <laughs> oh, he did. He, he did. did. I'm holding this three-day-old baby, Rick sitting next to me in uniform two days from leaving. And I looked down at her and it just crashed over me. And it was empathy for Rick. It was like, I was so heart, this is going to make me cry. I was so heartbroken for him because I had just birthed this child that I was going to lay my life down for. Like yeah. you could drive her out of my arms for anything. And he was about to have to get on a plane for 12 months and miss it all. And I looked down at her and I got this and I looked at him and just got this wash of heartbreak. And I, I looked at the camera and I said, or Ron Mott, and I said, we have it all figured out how we're going to get through this. But what I don't know is how he's going to walk away. By the way, that's going in a play. <laughs> in case you were wondering. But that's, and that's the, that's it. That's it. Like, how that's... are you going to get the strength to physically turn your back and take 10 steps to that white bus that takes you to the plane that takes you away. And do you want to know the 45 second shot they shot of me? Was that? <laughs> of course, for well, TV. But the, I the, mean, that, that's, their, like, that's their job. That's what they were waiting It for. is. And, it, and, and this, I, I want to highlight a couple of things. A part of that is, is one, your, your strength in that. And that is something maybe that we don't as civilians really fully understand about the family experience, especially the spouse experience being in the military. You were uh, obviously in an extremely like brand new situation uh, with a new baby and, and all of the emotion and everything that comes with that and, and understanding in that moment what, what he's going to have to go through is just, uh, that is, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I can't, and like you said before, like a a degree in being able to compartmentalize because I know I know that when I held my son 11 weeks ago for the first time, if I had to put him down after five days and say, I'll see you soon, I hope, yeah. I would be destroyed. And that's why I want to highlight the, the, just the amount of strength you have in that moment. And I also want to highlight a bit of just something interesting that popped in my head earlier in the conversation was understanding your husband's or your spouse's dedication to mission and sort of just uh, the patriotic feel of like, I'm going to serve my country. And that, and that sort of takes precedence over so many things. 
which can bleed down to the other things you talked about, the loneliness, the resentment, sorrow, um, you know, fear and all of those things. But I'm trying to understand from the spouse standpoint and mindset, uh, watching somebody put that very high up on the priority list, the, the, the patriotism and the dedication to country and what that, what that means to you. Because I would, see, I would think part of that is a very big sense of pride because you wouldn't be in the military if you didn't have some pride in that. But would, also some, that other side of that coin is resentment, I would think. Without a doubt. Yes. The yeah, bulk and of our marital issues have been because he, he, you know, and I think Jamie's the same. I think a lot of service members are the same. He'll tell me, and my husband loves me. Like I have zero doubt. He will tell me all day long that I am the most important thing in his life. No doubt, without a doubt. Him and even the kids, like that, that is what drives, I, I'm sure every serviceman who has a wife and kids back home, that's what drives them. I'm going to be home to see you. Well, and, and, what and the trust, the trust in you to, like Amy, you were saying, like, I trust you, you got it. I can trust that. And that's huge in a relationship. But there's also the expectation that we have it. And there was, there's yeah. been, you know, like I, in my own marriage, there's been times where I'm like, but I don't want to got it. I don't want to got mm. it right want you to get it. I want, yeah. I don't carry it all by myself. I don't want to live this life day to day that we have built for two adults to manage. I don't want to carry all that alone. Cause if I was truly a single mom, I, there would be a heck of a lot of things I do different. First one wouldn't be living 5,000 miles away from anyone I knew. Second yeah. one, would be, I wouldn't have two cars. I'd have one because it's hard to manage two cars when nobody's driving them or whatever. But when, when we were going through that time, when he was leaving, I did ask him at one point like how are you how can you do this like and I wasn't doing it in an ugly way not like how can you do this but I was like how how can you do this like how are you framing this in your brain to make what you have to do okay and to speak to like this patriotism and this living for something that's greater than even your family yeah. right because it's when you zoom out it's bigger than that and he said, and this, this is what I held on to that entire 12 months was he said, this enemy's not going away. I'm going so that she or her husband don't have to go. Like he felt this responsibility because he was already in it, right? Like you're already yeah. in this war. He was like, I'm going so she doesn't ever have to go because this enemy's not going away until we defeat it. Right. And that's, so, and, and, you know, as altruistic as that sounds or whether it was just like caught up in the moment, that's what I clung to the whole time was like, he's doing this for us. He's doing this for her. And if he can do that, then I can certainly keep it together mm. at the, on the home front. And I, and I, I think it is, it's just a complicated, messy situation, right? I mean, my, Human. my husband's favorite saying is, you know, if not me, then who? Mm. Like, Right. And I'm like, uh, anybody else? Anybody, yeah. Literally. <laughs> anybody else. But I think, you know, I, I just think it, there's so much to it. And I think, you know, for me, how can you not be proud? Like, how can you not be proud? Like I have 19 year old sons that are now freshmen at West Point. And when they decided they were going, I, I lost my marbles because I was like, no, 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 no. I'm done with that. We, we did that. We, we did that. We gave 21 years to the United States of America and we did it. And, but I don't want to do it anymore. 
right? Which yeah. is which is actually, I know that sounds terrible to say, right? Like I don't want to, but it it was true. It's how I felt. I was like, I don't I don't want it to be my kids. Make it be somebody else's kids. Right. <laughs> it was they all taking their pound of flesh from the Updraft family, right? Yeah, it was already my husband, but but then, right? They and I don't think that sounds terrible at all, because I think we ask every veteran who's usually on our program, if like, you know, oh, if we know that they have young kids, we ask them, we'd say, okay, say, say little Bobby comes over to you at, at 18 and says, I'm, I want to enlist. Like, what do you say? Then, you know, a lot of, a lot of them will say, go Air Force. <laughs> Rick says that all the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's that thing. And, and people have asked, you know, veterans have asked me that. It's say, you know, Isaac comes to you at 18 and says, I want to enlist. And it's like, I'm not going to stop him if he has that dedication, you know, I mean, what, what do I do? You know, it's but like, but it's going to break you. It but is. It, it will it was, absolutely break me. It was really, really. And Leah knows this. I mean, I, I spent, you know, I spent, a, I spent a long time and dug in and did, did some good therapy to be able to write, be like, listen, this is their life. And these are their choices. And I'm going to love them and their choices in their life. I'm going to be proud of them. Um, but I do think it's, it's complicated. It's messy. And, mm -hmm. and in some ways, and I know that this would probably be controversial too. You also, it almost like takes away your right to say, I don't want you to like, it's almost like the, the patriotic, I love my country card. Then you as a spouse, feel like you can't say, well, I love my country too, but, <laughs> but I want you just to go be the garbage man because this sucks. Yeah, yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like I want you to be safe. I love my country I, too. I want I you know I want all of that, but I also you, want what I want. And yeah, you spend a lot of time like conflicted because you feel like, well, now I'm not right. Like everything Leah just said is true. Like of course I, I mean, there's nothing that makes your heart swell more than when you're at those ceremonies and there they are, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't. And you're so proud. But then there's the other side of you that's like, why can't you just do something normal? Like why, like what, right? Um, and I know normal, but but you know what I mean? Like, oh, why, yeah. no, I completely I do understand. Why do you have to pick the hardest thing? Why do why why you have to pick such a hard Well, it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, what, you know, when someone tells me I, I joined the Marines or I joined the Navy and I, you know, I, I like to me, that doesn't seem as a civilian, doesn't seem normal, you know? And that's, that's where we speak to VBC as like military civilian divide, where it's like, it doesn't seem normal to 99.5% of the population. Your, both of your situations don't seem normal wouldn't seem normal to my wife. She would say, oh my God, I don't think I could live through that. You know, I would, sh I'm certain she would say that, you know? And so from the other side of that, again, that coin for you to say, please just pick something normal. It's like something <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> involve me worrying about you. Doesn't involve me being away from you for a year. Doesn't involve this or that, you know, it's like, it's so important for our audience, not just to hear veteran stories, but to hear the spouse side of this story, because it's not told enough. And this is where the niche of, of veteran spouse project. And I will wait really is just, it, it's so perfectly positioned to give a platform to these voices, to this story that isn't heard enough to the, the, the world war II spouse that you talk to who, when you ask that, uh, you know, I'd never been asked that before and, and, and made me think, that I will wait is almost a double entendre of I will wait for you, but I'm also going to wait to tell my story. Like I, I it's like this, it's going to, I want to be able to share what, what my experience is through this incredibly uh, 
crazy journey of of being in the military that everybody kind of focuses on the guy that's up there or the woman that's up there that has the the, the blue the blue uniform on or the you know the medals or the the sash it's and, like and you know it it is a fine line because we definitely don't ever want to take focus away from what they're doing and sacrificing right. Right, just like Leah said. But your sacrifice, I feel, I feel, in my opinion, your sacrifice is, is just as great. Thank you. And I feel like, you know, we we can we can make the table bigger. We can all have mm -hmm. a seat at the table. There's a there's a place for all of us. And now that I'm a military mom, I'm like, somebody get a leaf for that table because I we gotta get it. We gotta someone get a leaf. <laughs> Bring in the outdoor chairs. <laughs> Well, there's places in Chicago like Kids Rank, who uh, VBC has partnered with in the past. Kids Rank, who goes to the kids and asks them, "What's your story?" You know, um, because yeah, you can go straight to the kids and say, "Let's do a, an art project based off of how you feel about your mother or father being deployed." And you know, I mean, there's those stories that that obviously just need need to be told. Mm -hmm. They do, and and that you know that kind of leads us to the the thing I think we're most excited about for this upcoming year for VSP is that we got a grant through the National Endowment for the Arts. And so all of these monologues that have been written in, in my heart to script classes over the last 18 months to two years, mm -hmm. um, we've kind of come together into a writing group and we are gonna take those monologues and I'm gonna kind of create a new piece. So we're gonna have a play reading in November of a new of a new play. That's really going to be, um, you know, a documentary style theater piece where we are really just going to share these monologues um, and kind of share the diversity and, you know, just the huge arc of what it means to be a military spouse and a military family. Um, and I'm very excited about that because, again, it's exactly what you're talking about, Sean, the stuff that these spouses are coming to class and writing about are things that even as a military spouse, uh, we have one spouse that has really, really spoken a lot about their infertility struggle. Mm -hmm. And it's something that like, I hadn't thought about the fact that if you struggle with infertility and then they leave for 12 months, oh. right? Like it's a whole nother layer on to what's already an incredibly painful and difficult time. So mm -hmm. it's just little, you know, as, as the spouses and, and we have, you know, several spouses in there who married post service. So mm -hmm. their spouse served and then they married and now they have had to deal with all of, right. All of the things that potentially come up. And they're like, and I wasn't even married to him when he deployed or was in the military or was in the service. And now I don't know where I fit. Like, I'm not a military spouse, but we have all these issues and struggles. And I don't know. I don't know. They're all a direct result from wars or deployments. So, yeah. right. you know, and Leah just had a conversation this week with a woman who, you know, married for 11 years, divorced because he came back different and they just couldn't, they couldn't make it work. And she's right. like, but I don't have any where to go. Like, I don't have anyone to talk to because I um, feel connected to that experience, but I'm not a part of that community anymore. And Leah was like, no, you are. You are still. I cried, Listen, I was like, you're one of us. Come yeah. on. And I hope she does. I really do. So. Um, I, I want to circle back real quick uh, to something that I thought of was, uh, how did you feel about that first deployment? 
And coming out of that, how have you developed your own personal um, ability to be a uh, a support for those those the new women? Um, you know, it's funny that Jamie's first deployment for me feels like a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he left when my twins were five months old. And so, and, and, and this is just the nuance of that war. He had, that was an Iraq deployment. And at that time, the Iraq deployments, um, were significantly more dangerous than some of the Afghanistan deployments. So, that first deployment, I just, I just, I was scared all the time. Um, and, but I had a, a welcomed distraction and that I was so tired and exhausted and just trying to keep like everybody alive that, um, in some ways, you know, that made it, that made it, I don't want to say easier because golly gee, it was not easy, but it was, <laughs> Um, I didn't have the mental capacity to live in the fear as much, maybe, right? Mm. Because I physically, my life was so demanding that at the end of the day, I was so tired. I didn't have time to lay there in bed and let my head raise. I was like, I'm exhausted. <laughs> You're, yeah, you never were bored. And that's, yeah, you were never right. bored. So you could never, um, your mind never got to wander. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I think, you know, the difference is, and Leah spoke to this earlier, you know, when Jamie and Rick and we were all in Alaska and and they had deployed there. I think it's really easy for those of us who have done this for a while to be like, oh my gosh, it's fine. You'll be fine. You can talk to them all the time now. It's not like it was. It's not. And and we just really, really, really worked hard at making sure that was not our narrative. That, you know, Mm -hmm. this is still oftentimes a 20-year-old girl who is living thousands of miles away from where she grew up um, and doesn't, yeah, doesn't have, you know, doesn't is literally just learning how to be an adult. And now, you know, now the person that was her person is gone and she doesn't know and she's afraid. And, you know, all those same feelings I felt, she feels, uh, you know. So I do feel like we worked very, very hard to make sure that we were empathetic to to those first time situations. I mean, Leah, yeah, you can. No, I think you're a hundred percent right. And it makes me think of when we first decided to um, dip our toe in the water producing in um, Anchorage and doing this model of play reading with workshop, we did a couple of them on post at the small community centers. And, and meanwhile, this was all in the ramp up for the deployment. And so we, it, it just happened to be. And so we, I'll never forget the first reading we did. Amy, you might remember this. We we get up there and it was us reading, right? Like I'm reading a part, Amy's reading a part. We had a couple other friends that were reading. I got my 15 minutes, you guys. <laughs> she let me read three times. <laughs> but I will, I, and so, and we're sharing these stories, right? We're reading these monologues. We're reading these little scenes that are in I Will Wait. And they are about um, not feeling like you're enough when the soldier comes home because of all the things that they've done, right? And how does my story compare to yours when you've just literally saved the world? Um, it's about isolation and loss. It's about, you know, there's, it touches on all of these really, like you're saying, these vulnerable moments in the spouse story. Um, 
And I, I, this was not really something I expected, but this, I think this example kind of set the tone for how we approached spouses during that last deployment to Afghanistan. Um, after we did the first reading, a couple of the spouses that were in our, our husband's battalions came up to us independently. And then this continued to happen. And the gratitude that they felt because we were willing to be authentic and vulnerable about how hard it was rather than do what I would say most senior spouses do, which is make sure that their flag pin is really shiny and make sure that they, the fresh flowers are in the vases on the table and that you, right? Like we've got this together and why is this so hard? Um, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's all fine. Right. We were able yeah. to be like, we're going to be fine because we have each other and because we've got these resources, but it's hard and it's, it's hard, right? And you're going to feel lonely and isolated and all this stuff is normal and you don't have to pretend. Do you have to pull your bootstraps up and get through it? For sure. And whatever that looks like, whether that's running or working out or writing or doing the art or going to church or whatever that looks like for you, make sure you have that in place. Yeah. But when you want to fall apart, let's fall apart. Cause you know what? I'm falling apart too. Right. Like, and, and to hear that, I think from senior spouses, whose husbands were the battalion commanders and in these leadership positions was really um, helpful for yeah. the younger spouses. And it, I think it was, yeah, so impactful. And I think even to add on to that, to hear us say, yeah, listen, when, when my husband comes back, it's going to be bumpy for six oh, months. Yeah. Every, I mean, it doesn't matter that we've done this five times. It's going to be weird and it's yeah. going to feel weird. And that if it feels weird for me after five deployments, it's certainly going to feel weird for you because this In is the 20 years of marriage, it. right? Like we, we were old hat at this marriage thing. You, you know, I remember how, but when, when Rick came home and Amy, you probably have the same experience when Rick came home from his first, probably three deployments. It probably took that many deployments. It was like, it's so amazing. It's the Cinderella moment. Like it's, he's coming home and all of a sudden everything's going to be okay. And so you get hyped up and they come home and it's this honeymoon, what, 10 days that you get before. I was going to say 48 hours. So you're, you're generous. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably fair. But then but I mean, you start to hit the bumps and you're like, he's different. And I'm certainly different. And where, and this is where, when I was talking to this woman whose marriage didn't make it, I get it. I have zero judgment and a hundred percent empathy for that. Because when, when in our case, when Rick and I had to fight to find ourselves again together, that doesn't always work. Yeah. And I just feel very fortunate that for us it's worked, but it might not have worked. Right. Like, yeah, every time we had to, there came a point where we had to consciously fight our way, our way back to each other. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's just important for those younger spouses to understand, like, you're going to feel this way. And it doesn't mean you and your spouse are destined to be divorced. You're going to feel this way because you're going to feel this way because we all feel right. Just like when you have a baby, you're going to have a baby. And for six weeks, you're going to fall apart and you're going to be emotional and feel like you're out of control. And yeah, I thought six funny. months. So you're getting very generous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. And like, but I, 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 I want us to be able to have more of those conversations right. so yeah. we don't feel like now I'm panicked because my husband's been home two months and we're still fighting all the time and, and he doesn't have patience for the kids and right. all I want to do is have him take the kids because I'm so tired of being around the kids 24-7 and 
right? Like that's all normal. That's yeah. okay. That doesn't get fixed in the first week. You know, like to be able to have those conversations, I do think Leah and I, and, and what this project has helped us do and what opening up these lines of communication has helped us do is just, we say it all the time, but all I care about is being authentic, authentic and vulnerable. I that, wrote that down. That's the authenticity. it. That's our number one value. Authenticity is our, yeah. is VSP's number one core value. We will never, ever, ever do something that's unauthentic to our stories or to other spouses' stories. We will always stay true to that. And I want to get back now uh, here at the end to uh, to Heart to Script and the play that's coming up and just sort of like, you know, the energy behind that and, and how is it different than I Will Wait? So it's different than I Will Wait because, you know, I Will Wait was me speaking to spouses and kind of taking those stories and taking elements that really really like spoke to me and, and essentially like writing and creating those scenes and those monologues and those moments all, you know, I wrote the play with a partner, but between the two of us, you know, we, we created the entire script. Yeah. This project with Heart to Script is different because I'm hopefully allowing spouses to use their own words. And mm -hmm. yes, I'm sitting down and we're Zooming and I'm bringing in actors to read so they can hear how mm -hmm. things sound out loud. And um, I'm like, nope, less, less, right? And you know, it's the typical editing, like, but I have to leave that in. I'm like, no, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, you know, walking through that process, explaining to them like what it means to put in beats and what, yep. uh, you know, like like if, if you want a specific something to happen, put that in the stage direction. And so, you know, we're kind of on this process together, but mm -hmm. really, and, and I don't know yet how it's going to shake out, but at least 50% of the actual script is going to be their, they've written it. It's their yeah. words. It's their story in their words. You know, yeah. um, it's not me hearing their story and me as Amy choosing the parts I think make the most impact and putting those out it's them saying no this is the moment that made the most impact for me this is what I want to write about right um and I love it I mean you should just the diversity that's coming out of what everyone's stories it's just you know it it's beautiful I mean my favorite thing about theater is collaboration so it's just yeah. this beautiful collaboration of you know, things I wouldn't think about because my life experience is different than, you know, than some of these other people's and the things they're bringing to the table and, and, and to the process is beautiful. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my favorite thing about it is I don't really know how it's going to end up. <laughs> That's the great thing. You don't know how it's going to end up until opening night. And I even don't. then, I even don't. then. And even little, then. That's that variable, the variable that every night's going to be just a touch different. Yeah. Um, so I have faith that if we are authentic and vulnerable mm -hmm. and real, that whatever it is will be impactful because that that's what I know at my core. Um, so that's what I'm standing on. And I know, uh, I don't think there's any better pillar to stand on, honestly, when it comes to theater, you know, uh, and it's, I wrote down speaking truth, uh, and just speaking both your truths, even here today during this podcast, it's, uh, for anybody who's listening to to not all of a sudden be like, I want, I want to be a part of this. I want to see this. I want to, I want to watch it on stage. Uh, you know, I think you'd have to be dead inside not to be like, I need to see this. I need to, I need to experience this, you know, especially after God, three years of COVID and all of this craziness, you know, it's like, 
give us human interaction, give us, give us human emotion on stage. that's real and true. And, 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 you know, and teaches us something about the human experience that we may not have thought of before. There's our marketing piece right there. Amen. Yeah. Um, and we hope people come. I mean, we hope so many people come see it. There's so many different ways to learn from it and to deepen your empathy because that's what theater does best is mm -hmm. just opens conversations and deepens empathy for one another. And and we're just, I'm so excited to put this. I love it because I've just got all the fun. I don't have any of the real worry. I know Amy's going to create something beautiful. She's like, I'm stressed. And I'm like, whatever, it'll be great. See, we look at you, we look at your end of the theater though and we go, thank God we don't have that stress. Like <laughs> I'm like, listen, this is already funded. We have some amazing funders that have stepped forward to do this. So my job's done. Yeah, I'm like, I just keep inviting so people. I keep inviting people. They're all coming. And I'm yeah, like, so many people are coming. I do need a title though. I would like a title. I get that we don't know what it is yet, but can we get the title for marketing reasons? <laughs> I can't give you the title until the title makes itself until it appears, Leah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It is in the ether. It'll come to me. It is. It will yeah. come. When, um, it's meant, up the ether. when it's meant to be, it will reveal itself. <laughs> so is someone able to, as an audience member, if they're like, I want to learn more about Veteran Spouse Project, where do they go and how do they support your mission? So our website is veteranssouseproject.org. And um, you can find all of our information on that website. We we'll have links in our description. So it'll be easy to scroll down from our video or look at the where you downloaded this podcast. Scroll down, you can click on that link. Perfect. You can follow us on social. We're on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn mostly. Um, and if you pop over to our website, you can sign up for our newsletters. That's, that is without a doubt the best way to get information is signing up for our newsletters on every single one of our pages on our website there's a donate now button. And mm -hmm. we just be so grateful if anyone was moved by the stories that we told today or has a just a strong heart for the veteran spouse and the veteran spouse story, your support would just help us continue to tell these stories. And that is a big deal. So any of you are just so grateful for. And if you're a military spouse, or a veteran spouse, I have a heart to script class that starts next week. So go and sign well, up. Next week as in what oh. time? Because we're Oh yeah, wait. It starts the end of April. So okay. never... yeah, sorry. <laughs> if you're listening um... to this podcast on May 1st, maybe <laughs> yeah. you might get an email just like someone's in. like, you want me to hop in. You can hop in. We won't turn you away. Yeah, but but just check out our programming. You know, we offer we offer heart to script at least twice a year. Um, and we're always offering other, other, you know, expressive arts programmings. We have a book, we have book clubs in the summer. Um, we have a blog series. So if you are a military veteran spouse that has a story on your heart and you want to write a blog about it and submit it to us, you know, we are always accepting um, those as well to see if, if we want to put those up on our website and have that be part of what we do. So um yeah, that the website is the key for sure. Absolutely, and the and the newsletters. One little thing when you're poking around on the website that we didn't even get to touch today, so I won't go too much into it. Is one of our programs is called Stories We Tell, and it's where we collect stories of military spouses. And we just last month released the story of an incredible Korean and Vietnam spouse named Jeannie Puckett, and it's a 14 series installment um, blog style. Uh, her own words. And Amy did a beautiful job of taking each of her stories and then circling it back to make connections with the current day spouse situation. So it's a really beautiful intergenerational story of love and longing and waiting and adjusting and all the things. So if you are on our website and you have a little bit of time, poke on over to Stories We Tell. It's under our blog. 
and um, read Jeannie Puckett's story. You can get lost. She is an amazing, amazing woman. We were honored to tell her story. And our focus in the, in the next year is, is to continue to do more of those, especially some of those older generation, um, Korea, Vietnam in particular, has, I have such a soft spot for, mm-hmm. for Vietnam era spouses um, and, what, and what those families and service members endured. So, you know, if, if you feel like I got a story to share, just, just you know, send us, send us an email and, and, and let us know. Yep. Awesome. Well, uh, Amy, Leah, this has been just an incredible recording um one of my favorites certainly if not my favorite uh that i've done uh just i I just want to thank you both for for like i said before just speaking the truth of of what you both have gone through the sacrifices you've made um and i just i'm so excited for future collaborations and you know uh and if i'm if i were to be able to see this upcoming play this untitled play is it being is it going to be performed in tennessee is that it's it is so the the play reading will happen november 3rd um at a space here i live outside of knoxville tennessee so it's here in east tennessee you can make a weekend of it come visit the beautiful smoky mountains and and sit in on a play reading but this will just be a play reading and like all things how it works we'll see how it goes and if it um if we have something then maybe maybe the goal will be to produce it to have a fully realized production of it down the road excellent and it's river and rail theater river and rail theater is the space where it will be in knoxville tennessee on november 3rd river and rail theater i'm going to make a note of that and i'll look them up definitely um to our audience please like share subscribe ring the bell on youtube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes uh and you can always reach out to me sean s-h-a-u-n at veteransbreakfastclub.org i always have to say the you because if you say sean at, at starbucks you get s-e-a-n you get s-h-a-w-n you might even get like x-o-n before you'd ever get s-h-a-u-n um <laughs> but uh if you are interested please check out the veteran spouse project uh i am so excited for your mission for what you have coming up um just you know Nothing but kudos for both of you. And uh, uh, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Break legs. Break legs. That's why I want to end here. (laughs) Um, And thank you all. Please join us again next week for another episode of The Scuttlebutt. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, They have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured tobacco-free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, It was two wonderful conversations, so I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information. Or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health, for your support.